The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. So today we get to what I'm calling the Deuteronomic Covenant. It's really not a separate covenant. It's a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant with a new generation. But uh, the reason I call it that, one, is to distinguish it from those who see a separate covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 29 in particular. Some people would call that a land covenant or a Palestinian covenant. I don't, I don't adhere to that. But it does have the same covenant format as we looked at the Mosaic Covenant. Does anybody remember what the phrase that we used to describe this kind of covenant? Suzerain vassal treaty, which was a very common form at that time, even between unbelieving nations, one that got conquered by another, they had this kind of treaty between them. We're going to see that the whole book of Deuteronomy follows that covenant format. And again, we looked at it before with the Mosaic Covenant, so... Hopefully it'll be familiar to you. So this is the map of one of the uh, routes of the Exodus. And I remember a couple of weeks ago I talked to you about an alternate route that I had recently learned about for the first time uh, just to show you what this alternate uh, subscribes to is coming down to Sukkoth, coming down to about right here, cutting over to a point about right here, and then coming down and seeing the Red Sea crossing is across what we would call today the Gulf of Aquaba, right here. And then those different points between, that are listed on this map as Mara, Elim, uh, Rephidim, all those being over here in the land of Midian, and the uh, Mount Sinai being down here in what was then called Midian, now called Saudi Arabia. I'd never heard of that before. I thought they had a pretty compelling case for it with some evidence, archaeological evidence they found. I'd never really heard anybody make a case for the traditional route either. I just assumed it was true. But I've since done a little more research on that. I'm not as uh, com convinced about the alternate. There's usually three alternate routes. One of them is very easy to eliminate, but the other two, I think, it's just hard to say. It's hard to know for sure. The important thing is it doesn't matter to us, right? We don't have to know where Mount Sinai is. We know what happened for them to get down to Mount Sinai, and we know where, what happened from Sinai up to the plains of Moab. But if any of you are interested in pursuing that further, I can send you an article that discusses all three routes, pros and cons of each, and lands on one. We're going to stick with the traditional route this morning and uh, start up in the northeast corner of Egypt. They make their way down to Sinai, uh, crossing the Red Sea at some point, of course, and that journey takes about six weeks. Remember, Passover starts a new calendar for them. Nisan 14 is the day of the Passover. It becomes the first month of their new calendar. And then they arrive at Sinai in the third month. Now, even the text there is interpreted differently as to whether or not you can nail that down the day in that month or not. Uh, so <clears throat> we'll, we're going to say it, six weeks at least. The, the last two weeks of the month of Nisan, a full uh, four weeks of the next month, and then into the third month, they're they're at Sinai. They are, of course, at Sinai for just short of a year. Uh, what happens there at Sinai? They, they're commanded to build the tabernacle. They're given the law first. They're commanded to build the tabernacle, and then they get all the instruction in the book of Leviticus about the various offerings that they're to make. All that 
is while they're still at Sinai. From Sinai, they finally set out and travel first up to Kadesh Barnea. I think most people are at a consensus as to the location of that city. Uh, what happens at Kadesh Barnea? What do they do while they're there at that city with respect to the promised land? They, they sent out the 12 spies first to go up into the land, representatives from each one of the 12 tribes. They're to go up in there and see if it is indeed as fruitful and a land flowing with milk and honey as, as was advertised. And they go up and actually take some of the produce land and come back. And they're all convinced, all 12, yeah, it's a great land. Uh, but 10 of those 12 say, there's no way we can take it. You know, the people are too big. It's fortified. Uh, only two, Joshua and Caleb, believe they can take the land. And that actually is the last straw for that generation because of their refusal to trust the Lord, to believe that he was going to indeed help them take the land. They end up wandering in this general area for about 40 years. Finally, after that generation has died out, they send again scouts, if you will, or a representative group over to the king of Edom to ask him if they can pass through their country, in fact, get on the king's highway that would run straight up to where they're going. And the, Edom, the king of Edom says, no, we're not going to let you through here. And even God said, no, don't, don't mess with Edom. I've given them that land. They're descendants of Esau. So they end up having to make a detour back down to Ezion Geber, about here, skirting around the land of Edom. Uh, they have victories over uh, the king of Heshbon, and his name was Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, just before they get up to where they're going. But they end up in a city called Shittim in the plains of Moab. And I say all that to say this is the setting of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is about to die. Remember, he's not going to be able to enter into the promised land. He's allowed to go up into Mount Nemo, Nebo, which I don't know if you can see it. It's on the map there. And look over into the land, but he's not going to be allowed to enter. So this is his last chance to exhort the people to keep covenant with God. And that's exactly what he does through the book of Deuteronomy. It's interesting to me the similarity um, between the two is once he gets, once the nation gets down here to Sinai, remember, God reminds them of what he's done for them, how he defeated the Egyptians, brought them out of Egyptian bondage, how he cared for them as they made their way down to Sinai, and in a sense, reminding them of his claim upon them as his people. Well, the same thing happens here. We're told in the book of Deuteronomy about their journey from Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea and ultimately up to the plains of Moab, and God again reminds the people of what he's done and lays out, you know, kind of regulations for their relationship. He's done great things for them as their king, and they have obligations towards him as his people. So this was the form of the Mosaic Covenant that we talked about that is like a suzerain vassal treaty, a historical prologue, in the case of the Mosaic Covenant, described what God had done in bringing them down to Sinai. The preamble was really the, the heart of the covenant and an executive summary, if you will. Now then, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And goes on to lay out from that point the stipulations, uh, not only the Ten Commandments, but then how those Ten Commandments were fleshed out into different case law situations, different applications in life. There was provision for reading the covenant on a regular basis, again, to remind the people of what their relationship with the Lord was. And then there were promises of blessings and curses uh, associated with either covenant faithfulness or covenant treachery. So Deuteronomy is, has all those same elements. The whole book does. They're in slightly different order. But the preamble is in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, the historical prologue, what God had done for them up to that point where they're in the plains of Moab, 1, 6 through 4, 4, 9. The general stipulations are, are the Ten Commandments, basically repeated as they were from Exodus 19 and 20. And then specific stipulations are the case law that is, again, described. Uh, has a very full mention of blessings and curses of, uh, associated with covenant obedience or disobedience. And then witnesses uh, that are called out. And we'll talk about that more when we get there, but those are spelled out in Deuteronomy 30 and 31. So let's look at the preamble. Preamble sets out the occasion and setting of the covenant, and this is short enough where you can read the whole thing. We're not going to read the whole book of Deuteronomy this morning, but we will read this part. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. That is, they're on the east side of the Jordan. Remember, they've already taken some land over there for uh, two and a half tribes, and they've already defeated some uh, other enemies on that side. In the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Disahab. It's 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So, again, he's just kind of setting uh, the scene for what's already been accomplished. They've come up from uh, Mount Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, up to Kadesh Barnea over 11 days. Of course, they're further up now as he's saying this, but... It came about in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give to them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Andrei. Across the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. And again, this is just setting the stage for what he's doing and expounding the, the same law, basically, as the Mosaic Covenant. There, there will be some changes uh, because they're about to enter a different setting. They're no longer in the wilderness. They're going to enter into a land where they're going to eat from vineyards that they didn't plant and drink from cisterns that they didn't dig. So there's some slight modifications in light of that, but the core of the law is the same. All right. That brings us to the historical prologue. It narrates Israel's journey from Sinai to the plains of Moab. And it especially takes note of Israel's rebellion and God's righteous retribution during this time. You know, it's not been easy. It wasn't easy from the time even coming out of Egypt. They get down and they've seen all that God has done for them when they're down at Mount Sinai. What do they do? They want to have a, a calf, a golden calf, that they can actually see so they worship and can worship. And then when they leave Sinai and head up to Moab, they're complaining all along the way up through there too. So 
that's what this section is marked by. The purpose of it is to make clear God's claim on his people. Despite their disobedience, God had not forsaken them. And that comes through over and over and over again throughout Israel's history, particularly in all of this time during the Exodus, but also continuing on all the way into the exile. He had not forsaken them. He brought them to this present place where they are now, a place uh, in order that they might affirm, he might affirm his covenant with them. So we won't read all of 1 through 449, but I do want to read a section of it so you can get a feel for what this section is all about. We'll start at chapter 4, verse 25. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you shall surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long in it, but you shall be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you shall be left few in number among the nations where the Lord shall drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, and wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. He's just talking about how idols made out of material things are, are no gods at all. They can't do anything. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with, you, with your fathers which he swore to them. Now, what covenant is that, you think? Could be Abrahamic. Could also be the mosaic originally made at Sinai, right? Because that we think of the fathers as as the patriarchs, oftentimes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But ultimately, he's he's going to be faithful to both covenants. I would I would say that this is likely the mosaic. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? Has any people, he's, you know, this is a nation that has been under Egyptian bondage, that has already fought with some of the other nations. I would argue that has a feel for what the other peoples are like, and the fact that they have all this multitude of gods. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Again, he's reminding them of all that he's done for them up to this point. And this is after the first generation that had come out of Egypt has perished. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire. 
because he loved your fathers. Therefore, he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. Now, that does sound like the patriarchs there. Driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. And, I mean, this is an emphasis over and over again in both the Mosaic Covenant and the Deuteronomic book of Deuteronomy that there's only one God. And despite these kinds of exhortations for the nation of Israel, they continually turn to idols. We see that, you know, as we get into the book of Judges in particular, uh, that the nations influence them instead of the other way around. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God has given you for all time. It's yet another section like Leviticus 26, like Deuteronomy 30, that anticipates failure by this nation. Failure again. They've already failed pretty badly up to this point in their history. But it anticipates failure to live up to the covenant and yet ultimate restoration, not being forsaken by God. We have the general stipulations that are laid out in Deuteronomy 5 through 11. This section spells out the principles that govern the relationship between the parties of the covenant. It's obviously more than just the Ten Commandments. It clarifies who the great king is, Yahweh, what he's already done and will do for his people, and how the people are to respond. It includes the Ten Commandments, but it goes further than those. The essence of this relationship is spelled out in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shemoth, that being the Hebrew word for the word to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. What do we know about that commandment from a New Testament perspective? Kathleen? It's the first and foremost. That's right. Jesus said there's two great commandments. The first and foremost is this one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, upon those two commandments hangs all the law. In other words, if you're obeying that and fulfilling those two, you're going to obey the rest. Specific st stipulations chart start in chapter 12 and go through uh, chapter 26, 15. This section provides case laws that are grounded in that Shema that we just read and the commands of the Decalogue, and they're intended to, to be applied to the various situations in life. This table shows the correspondence between the Ten Commandments in the second column there uh, and where that is in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and then how it corresponds to a section that addresses the topic in the far right corner, far right hand side, I should say. Worship, the name of God, the Sabbath, authority, homicide, adultery, theft, false charges, and coveting. I'll leave it to you to, to study that out more and just to see the correspondence. But again, the main thing I want you to see is the structure between uh, Deuteronomy 5 and this case law and then how the whole book is in this covenant format. Blessings and curses are spelled out, the procedure for being on the different mountains in Deuteronomy 27, and then the promises of blessing in 28 and curses for disobedience. Uh, 
What's striking to me is that as you read 28, despite how great the blessings are, the section on the curses are a lot longer. And as you continue to read, it just it seems inevitable that they're going to follow the path of the curse. Um, you know, it's still put before them as a genuine choice, and they have life and death set before them. But it seems pretty uh, plain, and you know, we have the hindsight of this side of history too, but it seems pretty plain that they're going to disobey and endure the punishments, the curses first, and then be restored. This section, of course, parallels Leviticus 26 in its format. We've gone through Leviticus 26 a couple of times. The nature of the blessings, it, they do take place on the stage of the land, and that's why the land is so important in all of this. They're characterized by agricultural prosperity, fruitfulness and reproduction of both human and livestock, exaltation above the other nations. Conversely, the nature of the curses is characterized by agricultural failure, lack of reproduction, disease, and constant dread of their enemies. The ultimate curse being, of course, exile from the land and separation from Yahweh's presence. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 28, 63 through 65. And again, you see this same consistency. Leviticus 26 here in Deuteronomy 28, again in Deuteronomy 30, and then also picked up by the latter prophets. But Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 63, it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. You should be torn from the land where you're entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. And among those nations you shall find no rest. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but before the Lord will give you a trembling but I'm sorry, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. Oops. So we talked about the similarity between this and a Hittite covenant or a covenant between nations in that time. In a pagan Hittite covenant, the covenant ceremony purportedly took place before their gods who served as witnesses to what was pledged, granting either divine favor or punishment according to what was deserved. Of course, in this case, Yahweh doesn't even allow for the existence of those gods in reality, um, but he he does call upon heaven and earth to serve as witnesses. Not that God needs a witness, but you can see the parallel with the covenant format here. And he calls heaven and earth as witnesses to this covenant that he's making with the nation of Israel. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may love, in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Moses also ends up teaching the people a song in Deuteronomy 32 that again exalts God in the early part, expresses thanksgiving for what he's done, 
but also it's a song about the future and about how Israel is going to be unfaithful. It's not a great way to start. I mean, they're not even in the promised land yet. They're teaching Moses, given instruction by Yahweh, is teaching the people a, a song about their ultimate failure. Let's read a sample of that song in chapter 32, beginning in verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his, that is, the Lord's inheritance. He found him in a desert land in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Remember, when we look back into Exodus 19, he talked about how uh, he carried them on eagle's wings to bring them down to Sinai. And this is the same kind of language. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field. He made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats, with the finest of the wheat and of the blood of the grapes, you drank wine. So that's all the good things that God had done, including uh, bringing them into this promised land that had all this great fruitfulness. But Jeshuron grew fat and kicked, Jeshuron here being another name for the nation of Israel. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. Moses goes on to detail the consequences of Israel's rebellion. Again, it's not a pretty picture. But even in this pessimistic song concerning Israel's future, there's a note, a hope, a future restoration. This is a, it's just over and over in the scriptures. And it's really a good way to summarize the storyline of the Old Testament. So this is the note of restoration in chapter 32, beginning in verse 43. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. So to summarize the essence of this renewal of the Mosaic Covenant in the book of Deuteronomy, it is indeed a renewal of that covenant with the new generation that is about to enter the land. It spells out who Yahweh is, what he's done, and what he requires of his people. It promises blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience, with the ultimate curse being taken out of the land. And it promises, despite their disobedience, that God will not forsake them, but will restore them from exile after they repent. Now, we've talked about, we've tried to talk about how with each covenant, how it relates to the other covenants. And the fact that all these covenants work together to unfold God's plan and to even to bring it to final uh, consummation. We've already said it's a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant, so that's how it relates to that. The king that's provided for in the Davidic Covenant, which we'll look at next week, was responsible to conduct his rule in accordance with the principles of the Deuteronomic Covenant. And we've read this passage before, but Deuteronomy 17, uh, verse 18 says this, 
It should come about when he, that is this future king, remember they don't have a king yet, uh, they don't even have judges at this point, but they're going to ask for a king, God's going to give them a king, and when that king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, that is what he's just spelled out in the book of Deuteronomy, or what he is spelling out, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. So it's for his own sanctification by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart might not be lifted up above his countrymen, and he might not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So first and foremost, it's for him to stay right with the Lord, if you will, but he's also to be the example, the leader, in helping the people follow that law. The New Covenant, which will be several weeks down the road for us still, states that the law of God, the law first given at Sinai, renewed in the plains of Moab, uh, will ultimately be put within the descents of Abraham and written upon their hearts. Uh, this is what it says. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. The whole description starts back in 31, but we'll read 33 and 34. This is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the way it was supposed to be from the get-go. Uh, but the new covenant is an enablement for them to do that. When it talks about the law of God be written on their hearts, their inclination will be to obey it rather than to rebel against it. And it's for the whole nation. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Obviously, Israel has not yet entered into that kind of relationship, right? Right now, they're temporarily set aside until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. But this, the basis of this covenant has been accomplished through the shed blood of Christ. The covenant itself has not been entered into by the nation of Israel with whom it is made. The remainder of the Old Testament, uh, and we said this with the Mosaic Covenant too, but you see the way that the Old Testament plays out. It's exactly as anticipated in the book of Deuteronomy book of Joshua records the initial conquest of the land, the fact that they were victorious uh, in overcoming all these different groups of people. Joshua was an excellent military leader. He was able to break all the resistance. And then each tribe was responsible. They had tribal allotments. They were supposed to go up and drive out the remaining inhabitants, which most of them failed to do. As time passes, it becomes clear that Israel is influenced by those tribes and they become idolatrous. God punishes her and eventually takes her out of the land just as he says he would, just as he said he would. But even as Israel and Judah are taken into captivity, God assures them through the prophets that they'll eventually be restored. And again, they're picking up, those prophets are on the same language that was first given in the Pentateuch. I want to read, um, I've got Deuteronomy 30 here. We've read that a number of times already. I want us to read 2 Kings 17, 
pretty long section. If you want to turn in there so you can follow along, you can. Every once in a while when you're reading through the Bible, you come to a place that just really summarizes everything well that has happened up to that point in Israel's history. I think of Psalm 105, 106 in that regard, with regard to the Psalms. But 2 Kings 17 really kind of tells the story of what Israel did in response to God and what consequence they paid as a result. Let's begin in verse 7. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. And the sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. And they set for themselves sacred pillars in Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. In other words, they turned idolatrous. And they broke the most fundamental part of both the Mosaic and the Deuteronomic Covenant, and that was to have no other gods before the true God. There they burned the incense in all the high places of the nation's as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. And they served idols, concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, seer being another name for a prophet, somebody who speaks for God. The Lord had warned through these, saying, Turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. In other words, as the nation is turning and as they're being disciplined for their sin, God sends these prophets, both to the northern and southern kingdoms, mostly the southern kingdom, and says, repent, turn away from your idolatry, turn from your sins, come back to me, come back to me in covenant loyalty. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers, and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. Remember, and we said this before, Israel was a separate nation. They was called out. Uh, to be separate, and that's, I think, a big part of why they had the unclean and clean foods. It was to keep them from intermingling with the other nations. As they were obedient to the covenant, God would bless them, and the other nations would be drawn to their God. The exact reverse is happening here. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served by all. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. And Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. 
when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord. This is talking about the division of the kingdom after Solomon, 931 B.C., into north and south. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. This is just a summary of how Israel failed to keep covenant with the Lord and how the Lord disciplined her, ultimately taking her out of the land, just as he said he would. Not a lot of hope or restoration in this passage, but uh, we certainly see it in other places. So that's, again, the renewal of the Mosaic Covenant with the next generation. Um, Next time we'll look at the Davidic covenant and see how God's covenant with David was a part of this same story. It was a part of his uh, having a king over a kingdom. That's going to be the means by which God rules on the earth. He rules over Israel and through Israel over the other nations. Is there any question about anything that we've covered today in Deuteronomy? So. You've mentioned it's a renewal of the Mosaic, but the distinction between the patriarchs having the covenant renewed from generation to generation would be that they were on the precipice of the promised land and the, the nature of the Mosaic covenant and the fact that it was failed so violently so quickly. Would that be why it's a distinct covenant then? Again, I, I'd, I'd be careful even to call it a distinct covenant. The biggest thing to me is it's renewed because the people with whom it was originally made all died out in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. And it is... It's, it's basically the same arrangement that they had at Sinai, but the, these people need to know about it because they're a new generation and they're, they're the ones that are actually going to enter the land. I think in a sense there's a covenant renewal every time, however often they read the covenant um, before all the people, but there was a definite need for this one because of the um, people dying out in the wilderness. I think also because of Moses uh, being about to die, and having this last opportunity to do what he did. I mean, he was the one that brought him out of Egypt, entered, you know, was a mediator with God down at Sinai, and now he's got one more chance before he passes the leadership off to Joshua and, and dies himself. Kathleen? When he says he calls into witness heaven and earth, are, are we able to assume they knew he was the creator God? I think he's saying, listen, all that I've created should be a testimony <coughs> and should, you know, in light of all that I've done. Is he saying that? It's, it's a little tricky what he's saying there. Uh, you know, he's not, I would say that he, he is saying that creation itself is a witness to the relationship that he's uh, entering into with Israel and to the covenant that he's making with them. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like those are animate beings that can testify orally at least, but every, you know, who, who does God call as a witness? I mean, he... Yeah, just the verse before, he talks about they're useless idols. Well, you know what? I'm not useless. Right. I'm real. Yes. And so it's really a testimony 
himself. It's a testimony of himself, and it's a testimony to the fact that there is no other being that he can call to as a witness the way that they would, the pagan nations would to their gods. But his handiwork surrounds them. And in a sense, it's a witness to what God is entering into them. His glory and everything. Yes. So listen up. Yep. Okay. So if you want to do some a little advanced work, Second Samuel 7. I read the whole chapter of the covenant starts in 8, in verse 8. Uh, but just to give you some more context, and that will, we'll see how, again, Deuteronomy anticipates this future king. We learn from the Davidic covenant that it is the southern kingdom of Judah and David himself who has the guarantee of the line all the way down to Christ. All right. So no other questions. Good to be here this morning and to enjoy the Lord's table together. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father, it's, it's fascinating to see the power that you demonstrated in delivering Israel. Uh, those things remain as a testimony to us. And at the same time, uh, we recognize it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that lack of obedience on our part, lack of faith and loyalty is met with discipline. We know that's part of your righteous character to do that. And we just thank you for the, the record that we have preserved in your dealings with Israel in the Older Testament scriptures to make that part of your character known to us. And we want to be faithful to our Lord, to Christ, who has saved us, who has uh, made a greater sacrifice than what the Levitical priests were able to make, who has bought us with a price. And we want to be faithful to Him and loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving you that same way and demonstrating that love, as we've learned about in the book of James, through obedience, through a life that honors you uh, through one that needs wisdom, no doubt, but makes the kinds of decisions that are honoring to you and, and obedient to your commandments. We thank you that there is still a future for us that's unlike anything that we've experienced in this life. All we've known is life under the curse of sin. The whole creation is under that curse right now. But we recognize from these same covenants and from the prophets that first Israel will repent as a people and a nation and then all the world will eventually uh, recognize that Jesus is indeed the king over all the world. And even as we get to the book of Revelation, we see that some of that is a feigned obedience and a feigned loyalty, but you deal with that as well. So, Lord, we just even thank you for the where we are in history and the part of your word that we've already seen fulfilled, the part of your word that's yet to be fulfilled and how we can look forward to that ultimately in a new heavens and new earth without sin and, and perfect fellowship with you once again. Thank you for the time we've had today. Help us as we go to our respective places this week to, to live faithfully for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.